White Rocket Entertainment. White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 406. 10, 9, 8, 7, ignition sequence started. All engines are started. We have ignition. 2, 1, 0. We have a liftoff. We have a liftoff and it's lighting up the area. It's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center. The second five is moving off the tail. It is now clear to the top. Hello and welcome to the White Rocket Podcast, brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment in association with all our great patrons via Patreon.com. I am David Wright, and don't worry, you have not tuned in to the wrong show. I am your guest host for this episode. After over 200 episodes, Van Allen Plexico has decided to take a short break from his hosting duties. But don't worry, joining me today as the guest is Van Plexico, because we're here to talk about Van's superhero novel series, the Sentinels. So Van, welcome to the White Rocket Podcast. Hey, this is a cool show. I'm glad to be on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's neat to be on the other side of it for once. David, I appreciate you uh, coming on board to be our navigator through the waters of the Sentinels. Not a problem. I, I know I, we first met, I believe, around 1998, and you have been developing this series for about as long as I've known you. And I, uh, I remember in 2006, I believe it was, when you were rolling out the first book, and I followed the series all along, and I just thought it would be good. Now that you've kind of, I don't know if you've reached a final conclusion point, but you're, you're certainly at a at some sort of ending and, and, and inflection point, and I figured it'd be a good time if we could just kind of do a, a good retrospective and really get into your thoughts behind the whole series, because... Uh, I know that as a host, you don't always get a chance to be able to talk about your own work to this kind of degree. So anybody who knows you and follows this podcast, I'm sure is well aware of these books. And I just think it's good to get a little peek behind the curtain. So I'm glad you agreed to do this. Yeah, and I appreciate it. And, and I'm glad you said that because this is not a hostage situation. I'm not holding a gun to, to David's head to make him do this for me. He, <laughs> this was his idea, and, and I appreciate it very much. And I'm very excited to talk about The Sentinels because, like you said, I mean, yeah, the, the ninth book came out about a year and a half ago, and I'm planning to do more eventually, but. Yeah, you're right. It has kind of reached a, at least a long pause here. There's a complete story that is done. And so it's not, I don't want it to just slide off into obscurity and everybody forget about it. So it's good to kind of circle back around now and tell people that there's a nine-volume superhero series that they can read from the very beginning and have, you know, you can binge it and have a whole lot of material to kind of work your way through. Well, I know that uh, m almost I would imagine everybody that's familiar with the show is familiar with these books. But just in case, just real quick, it is a nine part series of superhero action in prose form. And before we kind of start peeling back the layers here, do you want to go ahead and just let folks know where they can find these books in case they want to refamiliarize themselves? Yeah, and, and I'll point out, too, we're going to do two sections to this to this episode. We'll first talk non-spoilers. So if, you're, if you haven't read The Sentinels at all, then you can listen to the first half and just kind of get an idea of what it's all about, where it came from, you know, just generalities and stuff that might whet your appetite. And then we will give a big, you know, warning and say, tune out now because we're going to dig into, we'll, we'll do another section for people that have read it or that don't mind hearing the details. So kind of a spoiler section in this at the end. But yeah, if you want to check it all out, they're on Amazon, of course. The first three books are on Audible. 
So if you can go to Amazon or go to Audible and just look up my name or the Sentinel, you know, the Sentinels in my name, probably need to put my name along with the Sentinels or else you'll get like the Marvel robots. But um, you can also just go to www.whiterocketbooks.com and there's a link right there that takes you into all the, it'll, you know, it's very obvious. It says the Sentinels. It'll take you into a, a whole website just on, uh, it has all the books it has links to like all the audibles. It had a, has uh, the the omnibus collections where we collected them in three big fat volumes, three books each. There's an art book, right? Everything is there at www.whiterocketbooks.com. You can also just go to www.plexico.net where I send people sometimes for the Patreon, and you can find a link there that'll go to the Sentinels books too. So they're easy to find if you want to find them. Well, I'll tell you, the whole series is fantastic, and what makes it so good is, of course, you really are successful at capturing the spirit of those type of cosmic superhero stories that we both fell in love with, late 70s, early 80s, kind of what Claremont was doing with X-Men, what Starlin was doing everywhere, Mm -hmm. what we were getting a little bit with the shooter era of the Avengers, and you're really were able to capture the broad canvas and superhero cosmic action of those stories while clearly not being any kind of copycat and bring in your own characters that are not like one-to-one substitutions, but these are a whole new universe, a whole new cast of characters that feel fresh, that feel relatable, but the spirit of the stories really successfully tap into those comics that we love so much. So I know that we have that in common as comic book fans, Mm. and anybody who loves what we're talking about is going to love these books. But you might not know that I remember this. So let's, I want to go all the way back to the origins of your ideas for the Sentinels. And I happen to remember that this didn't necessarily start as a novel series at first drop. I remember something called Renaissance Comics. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so tell me what Renaissance was or what it was supposed to be and who was involved with that. Gosh, you know, I think I have one copy of that old book around here somewhere in, in, in the studio here. Okay, so Bobby Polite, good friend of mine in Atlanta, where I lived for when all this was first coming together, Bobby and I went and saw Escape from Los Angeles, I think it was. And after that movie, we went and had pizza in downtown Atlanta, and we were sitting there in the pizza place out on the patio, and we started talking about the comic stories we loved as kids and the stuff that we still wish we could read, and we started just riffing on characters that would capture that same kind of feeling as the, the ones you just exactly mentioned. It's, you're absolutely right. It, Shooter, Starlin, Claremont, absolutely. And we imagined them all, you know, drawn by George Perez and John Byrne and Starlin. So that's, you know, in our head. And we just started talking about like super teams and heroes and villains and all that would kind of capture that, the idea of, of the way that comics were in the Bronze Age. And um, we started like just making notes and we must have sat there like two or three hours (laughs) after we'd finished our pizza, just writing stuff down. And we started getting together every weekend and just fleshing it out more and more. And we ended up turning it into an anthology of probably a dozen or so short stories. And like Bobby wrote some by himself, I wrote some by myself, and then we would get together and uh, co-write, co-plot, co-write a couple of big finale stories at the end that brought everybody together, kind of like the Avengers getting together, you know, or something. And so this was in the mid-night, late, you know, 96, I think. 
And um, you know, we knew nobody was going to publish it, but we knew it was something people would like. You know, it's, that's kind of how publishing was back then. Is now you have small press and Kindle and self-publishing and all these different ways of getting stuff out to the public. But back then, if you didn't get published by a big company, you didn't get published. And so we started trying to figure out how to do self-publishing before there was self-publishing, and we <laughs> we just started printing them. And we, <laughs> we sent them off to our friends. Okay, yeah. so they were always prose stories. They were never sequential art comic right, books. Right, yeah, no, we couldn't draw worth a flip, either one of us. So, And we were cranking out such volume of material that it would have taken ages to get any number of artists to draw all this. So we just said, let's, let's just write it all as stories and do like, you know, years worth of a comic book series, you know, in a, in a, in a book, in an anthology or novel. So I know that y'all are both fans of, of how Claremont was using Marvel Team-Up. Mm. to connect threads and weave a thread through comics of that time, similar to what Straczynski was doing with Babylon 5 during the 90s. And I'm wondering how much of that kind of went into your kind of world building as you were coming up with all these stories at the same time. Were you planning out connections and threads and long-term payoffs or anything like that? Yeah, that's and that was Bobby initially. He was really, and I mean, I had read him too and I liked him, but Bobby was really enamored of how Claremont would do completely standalone stories in Marvel Team-Up, but yet there would be a battle might cause some artifact to get knocked out of a museum into the street in one issue, and another issue some villain, you know, some thug would pick it up and run away with it, and then the next issue he might turn it on and it turns him into a giant, you know, monster or something, and they just kept connecting these little things. There were lots of subplots that ran issue after issue after issue, and it tied together a book that otherwise would have been very episodic. And so... We started thinking, let's do something like that. We'll each write these short stories, but we specifically inserted scenes and characters into each story, even though they had wildly different moods and themes. You know, Bobby was writing stuff that was very humor based. I was writing stuff that was more like, you know, Jim Shooter or something from the 70s. But we made sure there were enough little, little tidbits here and there that we could come together, you know, at the end or in future books bringing the threads together. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I mean, we knew that like 20 people at most were ever going to read it. So we were just having fun with it. We weren't really worried about, you know, having to please an editor or a publisher or even the audience. We were just having fun doing stuff that we knew we enjoyed. And at that time, I don't think we could have ever imagined, you know, how successful the books have been in the years since I started writing them as novels with Bobby's help. So that leads me to my next question is how much would a Sentinels reader today recognize in those old Renaissance stories? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that what it was was we had a bunch of stories in that one big thick volume. And so a lot of what you see in the first two Sentinels novels, certainly the first one, came out of three or four stories in that Renaissance book. But there was a lot of other stuff, too, that's never made it into... Like, Bobby wrote Star Knight as a, as a solo set of stories. And okay. after we did the first three books, I said to Bobby, why don't we bring Star Knight into the Sentinels books? And so, basically, I think the key thing I need to mention is to make it clear is, after 96, 97, we just kind of forgot about it for a decade. And then in 2005... I was actually staying with Bobby. I, 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 there's a long story, but I had moved. I, I didn't have an apartment anymore. I didn't have a car anymore. And he let me stay with him for several months while I, I kind of reestablished myself in Atlanta. And so while Bobby and I were, I was basically borrowing a, a spare bedroom from him. We were hanging out all the time. And I said, why don't we work on, on these stories some more? That was a lot of fun. 
and really do something with them because the technology had changed by then that publishing was getting a lot more widespread. And so he, he didn't really, he wasn't really up for writing whole new stories, but he was certainly up for chatting with me, you know, working through what we already had. And I said, well, then I'm just going to take the Sentinel stories by themselves, the ones that involve Pulsar and Ultra and Ezra and all, and I'm going to make a novel out of it. So I just kind of took those stories and restarted over from scratch with the same ideas. So yeah, if you if you picked up that old book from the 90s now, you would recognize Ezra, Ultra, Pulsar, Vanadium. It wouldn't go much beyond that. I don't I think it would get to maybe Mondrian and then after that everything's been new. Well, so that's pretty cool. So there was this brainstorming onslaught that happened in the mid 90s and then it kind of laid dormant for about a decade and then yeah. I guess you were at a point where you were ready to start writing and mm-hmm. You were with the guy that you had helped you come up with those ideas, so I, it just kind of reopened the gates. It really did. Yeah, I mean, I I only had like a part-time job at night uh, back then, so all day long I was just hanging out. I'd go to the library. When he's at work, I would go to the library or, or somewhere like that and just sit down with the laptop and write. And I got – Wind Strikes the Warlord got written in about three weeks probably because, oh, wow. well, we already had the story. We already had the characters. I just had to sit down and type out – you know, 60 or 70,000 words of straight narrative rather than little short stories. I want to move into talking about your influences and your background that kind of led you to this moment in 2005 or whenever it was when you began chapter one. But I guess I want to start that by asking you. So, yeah, you liked comics and you had this like brainstorming game that you played after watching Escape from L.A., but <laughs> 10 years later, you're writing a novel. So what I want to know is, how far back do you have to go to remember the first time that you wanted to be a writer? Or how long have you wanted to write a novel? And did you know it was going to be superheroes? And also, it's a big leap to go from I want to write to actually writing. I mean, did you did you do any studying of the craft or anything along those lines to prepare yourself? That's great questions. I wanted to be a writer of books probably starting either in kindergarten or before kindergarten. It's all I've wow. ever it's all I've ever wanted to do and I was reading books as early as I can remember and wanting to do that. I mean a big part of my personality is when I see something I really like my immediate reaction is I want to do that. It's why I do a lot of the things I do. And writing was my favorite one from the very beginning. I you know in, in like in like I say in kindergarten or even I guess it was before kindergarten because I couldn't write myself. And so I dictated a story to my dad and then my sister helped me finish it. Huh. So that's, it's, I wish I still had it, but that was before I could actually write myself. I had to get them to write it for me. So I had to have <laughs> like three. But, um, but I mean, in terms of like deciding to write, I, I yeah, I've studied, I, I've always said I read slow. I don't really read slow. It's just that I, um, I study what I'm reading, and I, and I look for all the tricks. I just break it down. I, I'll read the same sentence three or four times sometimes in a, in a book I'm reading, just trying to figure out what they're doing and, and filing it away in my toolbox. And I've never studied the far the closest I've come to studying writing, other than just you know English classes in school, is I've read a lot of essays by people like Zelazny and other writers on writing, and I tried to borrow a lot of the ideas. They said things like don't over describe two or three sentences at most. You know, after that, it gets, you know, if you describe a character in more than three sentences or give more than two or three vivid visuals, they get more blurry rest rather than more clear. Little hints like that. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you just pick stuff up as you go. And, and I just wrote a lot of really bad writing up until probably 2000. 
2003 when I wrote Lucian, Lucian, Dark God's Homecoming is the first really serious thing I wrote. And after I wrote that, I had the confidence to write anything, you know. And as far as deciding to write superheroes, starting with the Sentinels back in 96 with Renaissance Comics, I was just saying, well, I want to write something. You got to write what you know. What do I know? I know the Avengers. I know the X-Men. I know the Justice League, you know. So I know superhero teams. So I said, I'm going to write superheroes the way they are in the Avengers and, and, the, and the Justice League and the X-Men, but I'm going to write them the way I like to read a novel as an action-packed, hurry up, don't slow down, prose novel. So it was just kind so of bringing several things together there that I like. So it sounds like you're kind of self-taught as far as like story structure and how to put how to build three acts, put them together. Um, was this anything that was that you ever studied in no. high school or college or no, it's is it all, just your own personal study of the craft? It's all instinctual. I've just read so many books. I mean, I'm sure you have too, right? I mean, you're an excellent writer and it's just, you pick things up. It's just like, if you listen to enough rock and roll songs, you know how a rock and roll song is supposed to sound. And if you read right. enough novels, you know how a novel is supposed to sound. And you get a holistic understanding. You get like a blueprint of it in your head, whether you know it or not. And so I never consciously said, I'm going to do this, now I'm going to do this, now I'm going to do this with the story. I just knew the path. It's like I knew the ice tray, so I knew where to pour the water. You know, I mean, it just flowed right, right. in. I didn't have, to, yeah, didn't see, have to think about it. In my case, I was always fascinated with the craft of writing way before I ever really wanted to be a writer. Like, I wanted to know how they did it. Hmm. And so, I mean, I taught myself to draw the same way. Just study, like you said, you read slow. I read a comic book slowly hmm. because I would look at one panel for half an hour, yeah. figuring out the composition and the weight of the lines and <laughs> what was the cinematic choice of drawing it this way instead of that way. And hand in hand with studying film, uh, I minored in drama, took some film study classes uh, in college, and I really kind of used my love for movies and I used short story collections in terms of uh, studying and recognizing story structure. I, mm -hmm. I think it's it's easier to recognize in a short story than a novel because you're able to kind of get through it faster and kind of see the moving parts a little bit better. So there were there were two sides of it for me. I could study I studied story structure almost as a hobby because I, I kind of looked at stories in a different way than normal people did. Later, I developed vivid characters in my head. I kind of just put the two together and was able to be successful that way. That totally makes sense. Sure, yeah. it's interesting for you to say that because I read comics slowly too, but I I didn't really study the art. For me, the art just got me the visual of what was going on, and I moved along and moved along. But I studied the rhythm of the words, the rhythm of the story, the, the how much dialogue, what's too much, where do you put it, the timing. I'm big on timing in writing. You know, I'm very big on rhythm and timing and and knowing you know where to put the right thing and and, and how much. I, that's just very big to me. It it, it you know it's kind of like with comedy. You know, the most important thing with comedy is timing. And right. I, th I think that the most important thing with prose writing is being able, well, one of the most important things is being able to control the timing of the experience the reader gets. And so the careful use of description and the words you use in it and the punctuation you use, I mean, there's so many tools that you can bring to bear to speed up and slow down the scene for the reader and control right. how it plays out. And that's that's what I've always studied, and that's what I've always been big on. It's the, just neat that you kind of saw one thing and I saw another, but we were both kind of doing the same thing in a way. <laughs> yeah, and, and story structure is one thing, but the actual 
prose and, and the mm-hmm. poetry and the rhythm of the language mm-hmm. and how you describe or how much you describe are all choices that are they're on a different level. It's a different aspect of the craft than just structure. Mm-hmm. So so you kind of had developed for yourself just through your interest in self-education and, and awareness, some sort of instinct of how stories could be fit together. But and I, I guess the characters developed out of, out of Renaissance comics with Bobby. Mm-hmm. So. How did you arrive at the plot? Do you start with characters? Do you start with theme? Do you start with a cool action scene in your head? Do you know what the uh, the grain of sand was that helped <laughs> form the story around it? Yeah, it, I, it's a long time ago. But there's, I think it's a little bit of everything, I, really. I mean, and it varied. Like, for example, a bit later on, one of the main villains in the second half of the, of the nine books, the later books, is Black Terror. And... He came about in part because of the Black Terror character that was being revived in public domain by I forget which comic book company, you know, years ago, about a decade ago or so, uh, that one of my friends was was doing some of the art on uh, Doug Claba, and uh, I I liked the idea of the Black Terror, but I thought, well, I mean, if you're going to have a guy that's basically modeled on a pirate, let's just go all the way and and have him modeled on a Viking, and he's actually a savage Viking, kind of like if. I guess I guess the thought was I never thought about it quite this way, but the thought was kind of like you know what if Exo Man of War had been like a vicious bloodthirsty Viking instead of a fairly benign Visigoth you know in ancient times. So you know so you get these little inspirations and you just start adding you start sticking stuff like Velcro onto them. I guess if I go back to the very beginning with those original characters, I wanted kind of a point of view character that was younger and learning, so that you know as she learns stuff, we learn it. I wanted a kind of a mentor, Captain America, Superman-type character that would already know the ropes and could be her teacher. But I got him out of the way, you may realize. I don't want to go too spoilery, but he, he kind of goes away for a little while because it becomes too easy to lean on a character like that in a story. I wanted a, a kind of a smart-alecky Hawkeye-type character. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I wanted a kind of a emotionless android-type character. And you, you, you have those archetypes in mind, and you just kind of build out from there. It, was pre- it seemed pretty easy to me. I mean, it, here's the funny thing about Pulsar is that Bobby and I created her in 1995-96 for that Renaissance Comics thing, and we fleshed her completely out, including making her an Asian teenager who's kind of chipper and has electromagnetic powers and a gold suit. And then, like two years later, in the Thunderbolts, we get Jolt, and I'm right. like, I'm like, I know that Kurt and and uh, you know Kurt Busick and uh, and Bagley didn't know anything about our stuff. Of course not. We weren't even writing it anymore at that point. But dang, you know, you're like, if you if you get a good idea and you wait five minutes, somebody else will have the exact same idea and get it out there. So, if folks out there read these books and they think about Jolt, please understand, Pulsar has been around a couple of years longer than Jolt. It's just a coincidence. <laughs> so uh, I want to get into the characters a little bit, but I, I wanted to see if you had any other influences or any kind of like just background from your development, whatever may have happened in your life to kind of uh, have you arrive at this moment of writing these books. Is I know you've mentioned Starlin and Shooter and Zelazny, but has there uh, were there any others? Well, I think that Bobby and I both were huge Babylon 5 fans in the mid-'90s. And the idea of like a big story that's got episodic pieces, but it fits together into a big story was in our minds. And so we liked that idea of a bigger thing going on in the background and the main characters kind of slowly discover it and build up to it. So the first six books particularly do that, where you get like a big outer space 
thing that's building up and building up. And so Babylon 5 was, and, and the fact that in Babylon 5, characters could die suddenly, unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Nobody was safe, and I tried to bring a little bit of that. I didn't want the Sentinels to be, you know, reset, hit the reset button every story. I wanted it to be things happen that have consequence and matter and, and change the characters along the way, but also be fun. I mean, there's a scene in the first book that I basically was inspired by something in Master and Commander, you know, the naval, the 1800s naval novels. So, yeah, there, I mean, it's a little bit of everything, honestly, when, you, when you're writing something like this. You just start pulling stuff everywhere, you know. Now, was this the first novel you wrote, or did Lotion come before this? I wrote Lucian in 2003, 2004, so I had written the Renaissance comic stories well before. Okay. But Lucian was what I wrote right before I sat down to write the first Sentinels novel as a novel. Okay. Now, I would imagine the fact that you're adapting an older story kind of made the beginning of this series easier to ease into. You weren't having to... Oh, a thousand thousand times easier. Absolutely. One of the exercises that Roger Zelazny talks about in, in learning how to write is he's like, before you write a novel with a character, go write a short story you never intend to publish. And that way you can get to know the characters and then throw it away and sit down and you already know the characters. Well, we basically did that times five, you know, or 10. So I knew Pulsar, I knew Ezra, I knew Ultra very well before I actually sat down to write When Strikes the Warlord. Now, now who gave that advice to write the short story? Zelazny. Now, I want you to know, I did exactly that, and I, I had not ever heard <laughs> cool. uh, of that piece of advice before, but that's precisely what I did. I wrote a short story, and no one has seen it. It's going to need a lot of work before it ever sees the light of day, but it, it totally uh, not only helped me find rhythm as how to, to write a scene, but also it kind of led to an exercise that I still use, which is I will, when I'm developing a character, I want to introduce a new character, or if I think I have a character and I need to know that person better, I do like a freestyle improv stream of consciousness, just writing exercises. I don't care if it's self-contradicting or if it's Mm. sentence fragments. I will just start riffing on Mm. this character. And maybe out of three pages, there's a couple of sentences somewhere Mm. where something ticks. And I'm like, that's it. That's the hook. Now I know this person. I like like that a lot. I may steal that. (laughs) That's a good idea. Yeah, because to me, you really end up knowing the character. Like They just reveal themselves to me through that process. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty cool. So, yeah. um, all right, let's let's get into the characters a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. who who are these guys? Uh, you want to give us kind of rundown of the uh, the majors? Well, there's five main ones. I, the big three, and I guess I call them the next two because they showed up after the story was underway. I mean, the heart and soul of the series, the main character is Lindley Pulsar. I think she, I think she's like 19 when the when the first book starts, and we the whole series takes place over maybe two or three years at the most. And she's a Chinese-American college student in what we call Bay City, which is kind of like our version of San Francisco. And she basically has mutant powers. She can fly, she can make force fields, she can shoot electrical blasts, but it's totally out of her control. So her big thing is she's very self-conscious because if she walks by a television, it might explode. If she walks by a microwave, it might start cooking or something. So she has to be very careful and she tries to be secretive about it. So the, the first book is the government, shady government agents trying to recruit her one way or another into their service. And in the process of that, she meets Ultra and Ezra Brackis, who are the two guys that have been working for the government more as good guys for a long time. Ultra's more like, um, his powers are similar to Nova, Marvel's Nova. He can fly really fast and punch you. But, he's, but his brain is more like Captain America. And then Ezra Brackis, who is the... He's the scientist, the inventor, but also kind of the smart alecky. You know, I, I've always been annoyed by the fact that 
in the comics, Tony Stark was very dry and serious, not very much fun at all. And Hawkeye, Clint Barton, was the was the fun, wacky, irreverent guy. And I kind of combined the two into Ezra Brackus, and then Marvel made Tony Stark the Ezra Brackus version of Tony Stark. I'm like, <laughs> when I saw Iron Man in 2008, I'm like, no, this is my inventor is the funny, wacky humor guy, not yours. <laughs> <laughs> and let's not forget that Ezra also has. Uh, nanotech for like a nano cloud to, for his armor. Eventually and, uh, later, he gets that later. He doesn't have it originally. Originally he has a very clunky strap on suit of armor, but uh, later, later but, but he gets much more, much more sophisticated. And it once again predates what they did with Tony Stark in, uh, in the movies. Oh so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So he, he started looking a lot like Ezra to me in those oh. in the last two or three movies. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm <laughs> saying if you wait five minutes, they're going to think of it. Sure. But yeah, it all goes back. All that goes back to the mid nineties for us. And then they meet the other two major heroic characters. Vanadium is like a big metallic. Is he an alien? Is he a cyborg? Is he a robot? You don't really know. And then Mondrian is a um, a red-skinned, white-haired alien Starfleet officer who is basically assigned eventually to Earth and kind of ends up joining in as well. So, so you've got those five, right? And then there are a lot of supporting characters like uh, Pulsar's sister Wendy Lee, the the Hindu god Shiva. We I, I wanted to he comes in in book four. I wanted to have a Thor-type character, but I thought that the Asgardians and the Olympians had been done to death. And I teach religion, partly, in, you know, in college. And so I thought, well, let me look at what I teach and what jumps out at me. And I thought, well, Shiva, you know, the Hindu god of destruction, he's got a magical trident that'll blow crap up. That's, that's great. And he's blue. That's awesome, you know. So, <laughs> so and, I, and, I need, and I want to mention uh, Chris. You know, Chris Kohler joined us almost immediately. He, did, he even painted a painting cover way back in the mid-90s for that Renaissance comics book. And so when we started, when I started doing the novels with, with Bobby's help there in the mid-2000s, I immediately went back to Chris and said, I want you to illustrate these. Because Airship 27, they, uh, they were putting like five illustrations each into each of their books. And I, I'm really good friends with the publisher and the art director for Airship. And so I said, well, they're like, well, you should do that too. And I said, well, I know exactly who I'm going to get. And so Chris came aboard. And it is just so cool, David, that Chris Kohler ended up doing 45 interior full-page illustrations of these characters and these stories, plus the last three covers over the last decade. And I just that just makes me so happy that, that he was able to do it. And that you can just watch his art evolve as you can, I guess, watch my writing evolve from one book to the next. It's just a really neat thing. Yeah, absolutely. And he gave the book its look and yeah. gave the characters their look. And it's it's great that to have that consistency through the whole thing. And I really enjoy the illustrations just because it's, it's black and white, classic pen and ink art and you're you're not relying on a colorist, for example, to get some of the details right. It all has to be from the pen or the brush and uh no doubt he's he did an awesome job with all of it yeah yeah and i was so glad he was able to go all the way through and finish it and he did it's great and i'll mention we we have an art book when the last novel when the ninth novel came out i gathered all the art together we had the high resolution 600 dpi tiffs of all the art and i put them together in a book an oversized like you know eight and a half by 11 or bigger coffee table size book and Chris did a new cover for it, and I we each put like little mini essays for every picture. So that's cool. Yeah, so you can you can find that on the website too if you're interested. It's like um, 
It's just it's, it's every picture he did, plus some. He, we put in some developmental sketches, photographs that he took for of like poses and stuff. We describe. Oh, cool. I go through and describe, you know, what's happening in the story briefly for each picture, and then Chris comes in and tells like how he did it, what he was thinking about, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a awesome. it's a really neat thing. It's called Sentinels: The Art of Chris Kohler. Awesome. Well, I have to say, as we just kind of an overview of the characters here, the characters were clearly unique, but were familiar enough. I would say that the setting or the overall tone and the, the spirit of the story were all familiar to anybody like me who's, who's read the same comics that you and I both grew up with. So it, there was immediately a sense of familiarity, but at the same time, it was new. It wasn't like we we're looking at carbon copies of other characters. So I guess what I'm saying is I, I immediately had a sense reading the first book that these were characters that would be worthy additions to, say, the Marvel Universe. <laughs> they, they could fit They could fit right in and not, not be a duplicate of anybody, but certainly you know, just be at home in a, in a superhero world. So I felt like you got the, uh, the tone that, uh, you were wanting. I think, I think you hit that like right out of the gate. Oh, good. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. And, and Bobby is very, very good at, at both creating characters and coming up with very logical and creative plots. And so I think increasingly as the books went by, I did more of it myself as I got maybe better at it too, but I got to give a lot of credit to him for all the the work that he did in the beginning and early on particularly. And then we would come back and get together. You know, when I would work on a book, especially with a character like Star Knight that was his baby, I would sit down with Bobby and say, okay, would Star Knight do this? How would Star Knight do that? How, what would the armor do? What would the kid do? How would they say this? You know, and I made sure that it matched his vision of that character because that was always his character, just for example. You know, so you know, some, some of them were mostly mine, some were mostly his, some were entirely mine, some were entirely his. And so it's, it's an interesting collaborative process when, you're, when things bleed over so much like that, you know, all kind of a gray area. There were two characters in particular that were introduced. I don't think they were introduced until the second trilogy, and, and they may have both been Bobby characters, but... I really enjoyed both of them because I felt like the team was already established Mm -hmm. and I felt like this is what we're going to get. And then the introduction of Black Terror and and Star Knight to me really seemed to open up the the world a little bit and and it kind of felt more like a Marvel Universe. Those were two characters and concepts that, to me, really gave the series an extra jolt, no pun intended, gave the, gave the series an extra punch right there in the middle, you know, when you mm-hmm. wanted some new blood to come in. I, I just really liked both of those characters a lot. I, I think part of it is that both of those were very untethered to the other characters, and that probably is what made them feel more spacious. Because the Black Terror was kind of doing his own thing with with the aliens that were abducting him and giving him his abilities and all that. And so he was off doing that. He he was developing into the villain that we would see later. Yeah, I think when you first introduced him, it's like like the year 1300 or whatever. And I I was immediately like, whoa, okay. (laughs) We even had one scene jump back to War of 1812. (laughs) Oh, man. That's that's Wolf and Shiva. But, But yeah, I mean, in Star Knight, yeah, he's his own thing. Bobby had already created the family, the girlfriend, everything, the character, you know. And so I wanted to establish what Bobby had done with him and then have him start meeting the Sentinels. And, yeah, the other two characters i got to mention are Wolf and Shiva, because I wanted to bring in more characters, but make them... Their big thing is, you know, 
Ultra, our, our secondary main hero, is Ultra. He has a mysterious past, and he doesn't remember everything from his past. So I wanted to start bringing in characters from his mysterious past that he doesn't exactly remember that could start providing pieces of the jigsaw puzzle for him. And so we find out you know, where Wolf and Shiva come from, and I liked the idea. I told you that Shiva was, was to bring in a godlike being, kind of like Thor, but with Wolf, I wanted to bring in somebody that, in a way, was kind of like Nick Fury, but in a way, was a bad guy. But he's smart. You know, in other words, he's very pragmatic. He's not like a cackling evil, I will do this for evil. You know, he's more like, I have certain things I want to accomplish. And if working with the heroes gets those things to accomplish, I'll do it. And if working with the bad guys does it, I'll do it. You know, he's, he's totally amoral, but he's very pragmatic in terms of knowing what he wants and how to get it. And that was a very interesting character for me. I think that Wolf was as fun of as fun of a character for me to write as any just because I was never even sure from scene to scene what he might do. He would he would tell me, you know, I, I'm going to do this. And I'd be like, okay. So, so I know exactly what you mean. I, th- I have a character similar to that. So it's how he had his own internal compass it yep. wasn't necessarily in sync with the heroes or the villains of the story. Right. And sometimes he could end up being a great help, and sometimes he was an adversary. But right. whatever it was, it was still internally consistent for him. Yes. So yes. as a reader, and I guess you're telling me as the even as the writer, you never knew where he was going to go. <laughs> oh, no, never do. And then I immediately, he ends up, and again, this is not too much of a spoiler, just to say that he immediately ends up with another character kind of working alongside of him reluctantly who was also very amoral. They didn't they knew not to trust each other. They knew what each other were, but they kind of had to depend on each other. And that dynamic to me was one of the most fun things to write in the entire series was this dynamic of two characters who didn't like each other, didn't like anybody else, but kind of had to rely on each other in a very hostile environment. And it's funny when I was describing there's there's an illustration at the end of one of the Sentinels books I think number six, Stellar Axe, that came out about a year before the first Avengers movie. And there's a scene where they're all sitting around the table, and everybody looks kind of happy and heroic and all, except Wolf and, and the other character, Anna. And I described to Chris, I said, they need to look, they're not very happy to be there. They're kind of grouchy. They're looking like they don't want to be there. They want to go. And Chris is drawing it, and then he writes me back and says, what's their problem anyway? And I said, they're villains. <laughs> and he's like, oh. <laughs> So he's like, oh, so, now I get it. <laughs> so, so that actually leads me in, in a whole another direction. So you, you say you loved writing that dynamic with, with Wolf and, and Anna. Mm-hmm. But is that, some, is that dynamic something that you worked out in advance? Or is that something that kind of happened organically in the middle of writing? And how much did it surprise you? Yeah, I you know, I for somebody that claims to be such a plotter who sits down and works all these plots out, I work out the overall plot. But when I write something like the fifth, sixth, seventh book in a series like this, a lot of it is just I throw the pieces up in the air and they know where to go. And right. when those two ended up together, it was because they ended up together. And I'm like, oh, this looks interesting. Let's see where this goes. I really think if you, if you know your characters well enough, yeah. if they're all well-developed, and, they, and, and you at least know what each of their agendas are, that you don't really have to worry about coming up the action. You come up with a situation and hand it over to the Mm -hmm. characters because they will take care of it for you. That's right. And I've always considered myself extremely lucky that when I do that, usually the 
you know, it's like herding cats. The cats kind of go where they want to go, but you need them to come back together at the finish line. You know what I mean? You can't have them just wander off forever. If that happens, it turns into George R. R. Martin. It turns into the <laughs> the Game of Thrones books where he's got them wandered out so far now that they'll just never they never can come back. So I've always considered myself very fortunate that whenever I send the cats out wandering, they always seem to wander back to the finish line. I've been very, very lucky about that. <laughs> so it sounds like you and I kind of have a similar approach when it comes to the plotting versus uh, pantsing debate, which is just kind of going by the seat of your pants. Right. I heard it put this way recently, and it resonated with me because I think it probably describes me. I will plot my story, but I pants the characters. I improvise the characters to a large degree. Yeah, yeah. that's At least to a certain point till I they develop a life of their own and they, and they just, uh, they'll end up kind of taking over. So let me ask you this question. Were there times, are there examples in the series where a character just flat out surprised you and you didn't even know they were going to do that until after you had already written it and your, and and the words are staring back at you. That's happened to me in different books. I don't know so much of what happened in particularly in the rivals the middle trilogy where they're off facing these galactus level beings so much of what happened there just just happened it's like they it's like i was hearing a news report over the radio and i was transcribing it i i'm like okay that oh interesting really they did that oh okay so yeah i mean I, no no one specific thing i'm sitting here trying to think jumps out at me but i think there were a whole lot of little ones like i mean like there's a scene again i i, I can i can paint a vague enough picture that it's not a really bad spoiler there's a scene where wolf is aboard a spacecraft and there's like a rising tide of very dangerous say chemicals maybe in the room and he falls in and goes under and i'm like oh I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I was trying to, you know, my my conscious brain is trying to figure out how he escapes. And then my creative, I guess, sub-brain goes, oh, just knock him in. That'll be way more fun. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how we think, isn't it? I mean, that's how you do it, yeah. right? You, you yeah. something, something just says, you need to do this. And your conscious brain then goes, but, but how am I going to get him out? And that other part is like, eh. You'll figure it out. It'll it'll happen. Don't worry. And that's why I, that's what I mean. I think when I say I've been very lucky is I'll knock characters off the island into the water and just have the confidence that they won't drown. You know. And I think the first couple of books you write, you're very reluctant to do that. But after you've done it enough times that it works out, you start to have confidence that you can make it work out or that it will work out. I think. So, so I want to ask you this before we turn the page into like spoiler territory. Yeah. I do want to kind of get a peek at your process of how you go about approaching a, a novel from the beginning. But before we do that, one more character based question. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, I know enough to say that you at least you or, and you and Bobby approached this series with the idea that Pulsar was the main star and the main character. For the most part. And, and I'll tell you that for me, my experience reading the, the first book and the first trilogy was really more of an ensemble piece. I, I don't feel like any singular character was, was the center stage. But mm-hmm. I, I want to get your comment on that. But also, uh, more generally speaking, tell me the difference between like the characters you thought were going to be the favorites of readers versus <laughs> the feedback you were getting. And, yeah. and, what, and what was that experience yeah, like? Yeah, there's a story there. Well, as far as, as far as Pulsar and everything goes, 
I think that's fair because in the first three books, we're just establishing that she is young and naive, but very smart and capable. And you can see where that could go. She's still kind of being smart alecky and defensive and everything. She and Ezra bicker a lot in the first trilogy because she's a teenager living away, you know, and I, and I could see where other characters kind of overshadow her. But I think what's really important is in the second trilogy, I separate the, starting in the second trilogy, really, through, really the last six books, I separate the team up into separate little clumps through the way things play out. And, you know, she kind of has to rise to the occasion. Ezra has to go from being a rich, spoiled, you know, I'm going to invent stuff and have somebody else wear it for me because that would be dangerous for me to wear it. He really has to rise to the occasion, too. That was a big part for me about how the second and third trilogy played out was letting particularly Pulsar and Ezra Brachus be in situations on their own or with other characters and not with each other and they had to rise to the occasion where, you know, Ultra's not around anymore to say, here's what you need to do, here's the right thing, be brave. They have to figure it out, and they have to deal with that. And that was, that was a lot of fun. So I think over the course of the books, it becomes more and more about Pulsar and Ezra growing. I think the others do too and change, but they're the two, I think, that grow the most in the story. So you say that the big picture over the course of the nine books, it kind of revealed to be a Pulsar and Ezra story and their, their arc and their, yeah, their, their journey. Did you anticipate that? Or are those the characters you expected would have those main arcs? Or were you, did anything along these specific character arcs uh, surprise you? Well, I think it's just that they changed the most. And I think I knew that Pulsar would because she was young and she was going to grow up. And, and I think it was pretty obvious that it was going to be about her growing up, you know. I don't think I knew that Ezra would. I think that I made Ezra so kind of annoyingly unserious at the beginning that he called out to have experiences that would make him grow up some in a more mature way as opposed to age, you know. Because the others change too. I mean, Vanadium goes through quite a few changes and Mondrian goes through quite a few changes and the others do too. But I think those are more story-based changes as opposed to... Ezra and Pulsar going through character transformations, you know, classical character transformations as they grow and learn. Okay. Oh, and I know, right. you, did you ask me about the ones that, that, that I thought would be popular? I thought that Pulsar would be popular, and I should have realized that a, a, an annoying teenager was not going to be as popular as I thought she would. And, and <laughs> people would say she, she was not as, they didn't like her that much, and that kind of made me sad. They really liked Cavalier in the first book, and my response to that was, oh, and you'll find out why later. If you already know. <laughs> yeah. I, um, that was problematic. Okay, I got you. <laughs> so kind of, I guess, wrapping up the, the non-spoiler half mm-hmm. of, the, of the conversation, tell us uh, or tell me about your approach to the craft. Let's say it's time to write a new novel and your, your Word document or whatever you use is blank. Mm. What's the thought process? What's the creative process? in developing the ideas and then the actual writing process. How does it work for you? What's your workflow? Well, for the Sentinels particularly, after the third book, I basically sat down and drew up everything that would happen in very basic broad strokes from four through nine. I mean, yeah, from four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. A very broad strokes, you know, just the general idea, who's the villain, what are they trying to do, 
you know, who's involved in this guy. And I added characters along the way, and I changed things along the way, and I had them do a lot of the herding cats along the way. But, but just the general strokes, I started. That's that's why you start seeing Black Terror in book four, and yet he really isn't the main villain until eight and nine. Because I yeah, that's to, cool. I wanted to set up a villain that by the time he really steps to the forefront, you already knew him just like you knew the heroes. And, mm-hmm. and so I kept building him up in the background and building him up so that by the time he really steps up as the main villain, he's not just a brand new guy out of left field. So, so, the, the, so the process there was I had documents of notes and notes and notes. I, have everything, I had everything from cocktail napkins to word files. And I just started transposing it all into one file. And so literally books four through nine were one word file for a while. And I would write and, and, and outline until I kind of got to where I thought the ending would be. And then I would chop it off there and make a new file out of it and leave the rest of it sitting there. And the funny thing that kept happening was I kept getting to the point where the book needed to end. And I still had a lot of material in the outline. And so I would just saw it off and cut, and I would just cut that part out of the end of the outline and paste it into the beginning of the next one. So book four got to about 75,000 words. It was getting about as long as it needed to be, and it was getting to a conclusion. And I said, all right, I chopped out a whole bunch of stuff and put it at the beginning of book five's outline. So then I'm writing book five, and it gets to about 85,000 words. I'm like, all right, this is as long as this needs to be. So I chopped out, I found the good natural ending for it and chopped out everything after it and added it on to book six. Well, book six was the end of this trilogy, and so... I could, there was nowhere to put it. I couldn't have a book 6.5, you know. So Stellarax, book six, is almost a, it's around 100,000 words. It's way long. In fact, one reviewer, just one reviewer I remember said, it's, a, it's longer than it needs to be. And I'm like, I agree with you, but there was nowhere else to go. You know, it's kind of like the end of Return of the King. It's like you got all these you know, endings things, but... I couldn't put them at the beginning of book seven. That wouldn't make any sense, and I, right. I didn't want to. I didn't want to lose them. So that book is just heck of a long book. But that's how it worked out. So, so is this a case of you're not really doing, I guess, thumbnail sketches of scenes? You just have a detailed outline, and and, and then when it comes to actually composing, you're just. Uh, just kind of uh, pantsing it from that stage. Yeah, I had I had general ideas of things I wanted to have happen. And I, they, I just kind of trusted that they'd work themselves out, and they really did. And that, and I think that's more organic. You know, it's like you and I both know, right? I mean, if it works out organically, it's going to be a lot more logical. If you try to force it, it turns into a Damon Lindelof story, you know, where you predetermine what you want to have happen, and then you force it to happen. And that never works because everybody can anybody who's paying attention can tell that it's that it's false it rings false you know mm-hmm. if the if the characters behave in a predictable way for them even if it's an unpredictable way a way that's predictable for them in an organic natural way then the story no matter how off the wall it, it becomes it is is still believable when right. you start forcing the characters to do something even if it's a more normal thing they would do if you're forcing it readers can tell you know you can tell so <laughs> For example, I had a vision in my mind that Star Knight rips the doors off of a giant space station airlock or something. Or I had a vision of, of one of the evil robots emerging from a bunch of coils of cables and flashing lights and coming out like the alien, you know, at the end of Alien or something. And, and I just try to figure out where does that fit in? Where can I have that happen, you know? And so, mm-hmm. and, and I would just plug it, I would just 
craft the scene around that existing idea, pretty much. Yeah, you know, I don't really concern myself with the whole plotting versus improvising debate because to me, it's 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 a natural synthesis of the two. Uh, yeah, I I definitely have to outline the structure of it. That's how I, my brain works, and I I have to know what the ending is going to be generally. Like, what am I working towards? But I liken it to like a roadmap. I can I can look at this map and see here I am and that's where I want to be and this is the road I'm going to take. But until I start writing, I don't know what the scenery is like, what the traffic's going to be, what the lo- landmarks and scenery is going to be, and where the stop signs are, where the potholes in the road are. Oh yeah. And so you just the, in the process of writing, you discover those things and. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't beholden myself to the outline. I've, I've got a plan, but if the characters have a different idea, I'll go that way and then adjust later. And to me, it's uh, the the whole thing should be fluid. If you're yes. if you're locked into a plan and you're and you're having to fight the characters and to make them go that way, it's just it's not going to work out. So well, the meta- it sounds like we kind of have the yeah. same general approach I, to this. I think so. The, the metaphor I like to use is, it's like if we're in New York and the plan is to get to Los Angeles. and I'm not going to diagram every square inch of, re, of highway between New York and Los Angeles in advance. But what I am going to do is I'm going to know who's in the car, what kind of car, you know, what time we're leaving, and then we're going to try to get to Indianapolis. We're going to try to hit you know, Phoenix. We're going to try to go through Vegas or something, and then we're going to get to, to Los Angeles. And if we go way, if we if we get to Indianapolis and then veer all the way down to Birmingham and then over to Dallas and then back up, I mean, that's fine. As long as we get to, to Los Angeles at the end, you know, I don't really care how we get there as long as it's a natural, organic path. Very good. All right. Well, uh, I guess we can kind of start getting into some story specifics for those that don't mind being spoiled or have already read the books. But before we get into that, as host of the White Rocket podcast, I'm very grateful for our patrons, mm-hmm. and I know that they are among your favorite people in the world, and I thought maybe you would like to take this opportunity to share their names with everybody. Yeah, we, we <laughs> on, on almost, uh, that's a very good intro, on almost every show that we do, John and I, Jared, whoever, uh, Alan, whoever, we always thank our patrons for the most part by name because they go out of their way to help keep our shows on the air and we want to go out of our way to make sure that they know we appreciate them. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be part of the White Rocket family, whether you like our Auburn football stuff over on the AU Wishbone Network, whether you like the pop culture stuff here on the White Rocket uh, Network, whether you like our James Bond Network. the owner, We have three completely separate networks now. It's crazy under the White Rocket banner. Uh, with the, with the On Her Majesty's Secret podcast for the James Bond shows. And we have a whole bunch of people doing it, and it's awesome. And so we have a lot of bills to pay. <laughs> That's a lot of expenses to cover for three separate networks and URLs and all that. And so for as little as a dollar a month, you can join the family and help keep these shows on the air. Just go to www.plexico.net, and you'll find the link that takes you to the Patreon page where you can do that. And we have other benefits, too. I send out free books to people every so often. Uh, you get to see early artwork from our comics and from our books and stuff. We post private videos and, and early uh, access to some of the podcasts there, so you get a lot of benefits. We've got to thank Brendan O'Dwyer, Samuel Salvatore, Christopher Burleson, and Carl Von Drunker. And then there is Phil Amthor, Winston Body, Willie Carden, Susan Trawick, Ben Spooner, Stephen Thompson, Chris Usher, Justin Bean, Richard Stevens, and Steve Trawick. 
There's Kevin Smith, Clarence Alford, David Hegler, Robert Mendenhall, Johnny Caldwell, Reynolds Wolf, Joshua Corbett, Valiant Hermes, Jacob and Robin Fleming, Clay Henson, Ann Kangian, Catherine England, George Gaston, Will Summerford, John McCune, Tom Anderson, and David Evers, Andrew Barber, Timothy, Steve Harlan, Dave, uh, Dan Thompson, Wes Atkinson, Rich Reimer, Jared Albrecht, William Glenn Matthews, and Joel Beckham. We're getting there. Theodore Gary, Shannon Butson, Taylor Sanford, Mickey B, Hugh Anderson, Shane Bailey, Mick Vigicana, Chris Thrash, Logan Chilton, Tony Perry, Alex Nguyen, Josh Teal, David Simpson, Earl Ricks, Mike Finley, C.T. Wayne, and Dave Powell. And then we've got Jeremy Minton, Lane Middleton, Donnie Reynolds, Wade Carson, Ivor Evans, John Zavachin, Chris Camo, Darren Pyle, Chris, Wardam Wade, Jason Albrick, Randall Walker, Ben Amos, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Patrick Williams, Rob Morgan, Stephen Schuster, James Taylor, John Stubbs, Kenneth Brent Rains, Nicholas Craig, Russell Milling, Matthew Wagstaff, Joey Miller, Mark Squire, Spanky, Brent Rumble, J.W. Rice, Michael Morton, Lawrence Kane, and our one-time donors, including Surfer Chickify and the others and the anonymous donors. We thank you all. We love you very much, and we couldn't do it without you. So go to www.plexico.net or just go to www.patreon.com for that matter and search Plexico or White Rocket, and you can... Join the crowd. Join the fun. All right. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we can uh, get into a little bit of uh, spoilers here. We don't have to. We don't have to dig too deep. However, however direction you want to take this, but mm-hmm. I know that the first three books uh, comprise a story that you've called the Grand Design. Yep. The first one was called Wind Strikes the Warlord. If memory serves, that came out in two thousand six. Is that right? Yeah, the 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 first little sort of self-published version I did was in 05 late when when I was living with Bobby, but Permuted Press stepped in and bought the first trilogy and put all of them out in 2008, I believe. So it's kind of gray, you know. There's it, they they kind of went to th- the first trilogy went 2005 2006 2007 and then they came out again from a bigger publisher in 2008. Okay, all right, because I uh, I, I remember being at Heroes Con with you when uh, when you were had that first printing I believe it was mm-hmm. and you were uh, getting in front of people and I think I have one of those early uh, editions that nice. you did. It was certainly not the final cover design. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I've read the final version of the story. Maybe maybe <laughs> I haven't. So t- what do you want to tell us about the grand design or, or maybe when strikes the warlord in particular? Um, uh, but let, me, let me say this first, though, before we get started. Each of these books are maybe not the middle trilogy, okay, but in the last three, the covers are kind of recreations or, or homages to some classic Marvel Comics covers. And uh, I love that about all these books. And I can recognize the source material of, I think, all of them. So I think that's very cool. And uh, I know Wind Strikes the Warlord is based on a George Perez cover that he did in uh, 99, I think. But uh, tell, us about, tell us about this first book. Yeah, the, the, the whole first trilogy is really about the Warlord, who is a cosmic sort of dictator conqueror from another dimension. And the, the central idea around the Warlord is there can only ever be one version of him in, in the whole multiverse. And so he kind of wants to conquer every dimension, every aspect of the multiverse and rule them all, to kind of collapse them all together so he can rule them all at once. So there's a little Kang in him, little Doctor Doom, a little Magneto back in the old, you know, the early days of Magneto when he was really a villain. And, and he has a, a henchman named Francisco, who's got a little of the toad in him, a little of the guy from Babylon 5, Zathras. You know, he's, he's the cringing assistant, Igor, the classic Igor character, you know, to Dr. Frankenstein. 
And yeah, so, he's a lot of fun. Yeah, and well, and um, and he his his job is he's totally the the sycophant, the lackey, but he has the job that if the warlord ever like loses track of the grand design that he's supposed to be doing. Francisco can kill him. <laughs> so I like the idea that, you know, suddenly Igor can stab Dr. Frankenstein, you know, that, that, uh, <laughs> the, that the toad could, could kill Magneto. But when you kill him, another one appears. And so that kind of sets up the idea for the first trilogy, this idea that the warlord is immortal and just keeps coming back and you can just never totally stop him. He's really the main villain of the whole series on and off, I think. But yeah, the first book is really kind of introducing the characters and bringing them together. And then the second book, A Distant Star, I send uh, Ezro off to the other side of the galaxy with Mondrian, the, the Starfleet officer from the, the Kurbai alien race that's very advanced. Because what that did was allow Ezra to go off and meet a bunch of, you know, get it and let the readers meet a bunch of the big cosmic stuff that's coming to Earth. He kind of gets a sneak preview of what's coming in the next four books or so, really, so and beyond, really. Well, good. I know my. It's been a long time since I've read these books, but I'll be honest. I read them when they all first came out. But my takeaway from it was just how much fun, just the world building you were doing and establishing everything, establish the setting, establishing the characters. Again, that immediate familiarity, but still everything you know clearly being unique and new. And uh, the the big cosmic the the whole all the cosmic ideas with the wheel turning and all that kind of stuff, mm. and and what and what uh, Ezra and Mondrian were doing in the second book when they got separated, kind of this just giant like collector type dude they ran into a big space um, station, yeah, with a yeah very collector type character. That's right. So a lot of that was a lot of fun, but uh, but this I guess ties into this series. I guess maybe this is in the third book of Apocalypse Rising. Is when we get into Cavalier. Oh, I want to say this too. This was the series, right? I mean, this was the trilogy that gave us Field Marshal and Distraction and Blue Skull and all those guys, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Bobby and I were playing City of Heroes, and we were having fun making up these kind of off the wall characters. And so we brought Distraction over as like the classic, the guy that runs around in the in the massive role playing computer game in in like women's underwear, you know. And so we thought, well, we could, what, would, what would her power be if she's running around in her underwear? Well, that she distracts you, you know. She has some kind of mental <laughs> powers, and she distracts you. And so that was just kind of a – that just seemed fun. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the first trilogy is a little sillier. The, if you read these books and the first trilogy, you're like, well, this seems a little less serious. It's true. They get, they get darker and much more serious as they go. It's just that when we were writing the first three – we were still, you know, Bobby and I were sitting there talking about them, and we were still just having a lot of fun doing wacky stuff. And then as the characters got more real, I sort of took them in more of a serious direction and, and made it much more like a, you know, I guess they start out like 60s Marvel in a way, but very quickly yeah. become 70s and 80s Marvel, is that, is that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I, I was going to try to say, you know, it, it seems like as the as the trilogies go on, mm-hmm. the the sci-fi gets a little more serious. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it, but yeah. but definitely you got kind of a looser, more silver age kind of approach with a lot of these characters in the first in the first book, and then For sure. and then you kind of really channel the uh, the sci-fi element, but still clearly superhero world uh, with the rest of them. So, but uh, let's talk about Cavalier because uh, yeah. I'm one of those guys yeah. that you were talking about. I don't know. I can't tell you exactly why, but I liked Cavalier. Oh, and yeah, you wrote him to kind of be grading on purpose. But for whatever reason, <laughs> it came across. I don't know if charming is the right word, but maybe it made him the most distinctive. Yeah. Like like he was most vivid that way because maybe 
I, you know, a lot of people can really recognize someone they know in a character like that. But when he, I, we're, we're spoilers, right? So yeah. when he, uh, when he meets his fate, yeah. that, uh, man, that, I, I was disappointed. I, that's, <laughs> that was the guy I wanted to see stick around, but I do bring his sister in later. So <laughs> it, you know, you get something like that later, but yeah. Now, did you bring the sister in because of reaction to the first Cavalier, or yeah, did you always a, plan that? To a degree. Well, you know, it's funny you say, I, I created Pulsar to be endearing and Cavalier to be annoying, and it ended up that people found Pulsar annoying and Cavalier endearing. So <laughs> sometimes it doesn't work out the way you want it to, you know. <laughs> What's your reaction to this first trilogy? Now that it's kind of done and you can step back and look at it, What's your feelings and relationship toward this trilogy now? It's it's funny because I always look at the first book and I think, you know, that was one of the first things I wrote as an actual professional writer for money. And I know if I sat down from scratch, I could write a better book today. But then it gets such good reviews and people like it so much and they don't seem to mind the sillier little parts of it here and there. Like when I want to say... Cavalier gets a supervillain drunk or something. I wouldn't. I would have never done that in one of the later books. But in the first book, it just seemed funny. But people people seem to think I've I've heard more than one person say that the first book catches lightning in a bottle, and I am I am loath to tamper with it because I don't want to lose what people like about it. Trying to fix technical stuff about it, so right. I, I just kind of like. I hope people like it. I hope it makes them want to read the second one and the third one and keep going. I hope it doesn't turn them off because it's different than the others. It's sillier. It's not probably as well written, but I don't want to mess with it, you know? I like the whole second book being a large part being uh, Ezra and Mondi having to learn to, to deal with each other, and Mondrian is very aloof. I, I liked the idea that like the smartest human being on earth gets with this alien woman and she thinks he's basically a, a jumped up monkey because everybody <laughs> in her everybody in her civilization is smarter than him and he's the smartest human, you know. So that was right. kind of fun to play with. And he's like he resents that because he's always known he's the smartest guy in the room and suddenly he's the dumbest, you know, and that's that was fun. And then I guess in the third book bringing the villains, the heroes together, a threat that threatens the entire earth. I was starting already down this path that the second trilogy really hits hard of saying that the heroes and the villains sometimes have to put their differences aside and team up because the whole planet, you know, survival of the whole planet is more important sometimes than whether you want to rob a bank or I want to stop you, you know. So mm-hmm. so, so that's kind of where the third book starts taking us. And, I, and the other important thing in the third book is that's when Mondrian, she's gained some powers already. And now she's assigned to Earth, and so she basically becomes the fifth member of the team. Yeah, so, and she was always kind of my Ms. Marvel, my Captain Marvel from the very beginning. She was Captain Mondrian, you know. So, <laughs> and and I would say the addition of Mondrian and the loss of Cavalier right away from the beginning, we're meeting a team that remains uh, in flux. The membership's fluid. You know, you're not we're not coming in late and finding a static team. So right. I, I felt like the fact that there were already changes and tweaks to the roster and the lineup, even in this first story. It, it it made me feel like, yeah, it's weird. I don't know how to say it. Maybe as a reader, we were getting in at a, at a good time. Like we weren't like it, it it felt like it was, it was an ongoing operation and it kind of made the world feel a little lived in. I I guess what I'm trying to say, Mm -hmm. 
it I guess just kind of added to the I don't I'm not describing it very well, but it, it, it felt it, it just kind of felt real, I guess, maybe relatable to my experience reading the comics and knowing what your inspiration was. Yeah, I, maybe another example of hitting that same tone that you're going for. Well, and I think the, the one rule I kept in the back of my mind, the entire nine books, and, and it wasn't even something I consciously thought so much as just that's how I did it, was that nothing would stay the same for five minutes. People are constantly joining, leaving. I mean, in, in book seven, Pulsar has a membership drive straight out of um, Mystery Men, you know, where <laughs> she's got to find new, new heroes because the others are all on the other side of the galaxy. And she and her sister are just kind of there in the mansion going, we, we need help. Vanadium isn't the same by like book five. Ultra is not the same at all by like the end of book five. Mondrian Do you think that's Chandler. a result of bringing superheroes into a prose story? Because a lot of times with ongoing comic series, it's kind of important that you keep a status quo, yeah. at least for a little while. And you will want to be able to have episodic standalone adventures for years. Yeah. And, um, and here you're only telling a handful of stories, so you, you got to get them all in. Yeah, I think there's something to that for sure. And and because I had a finite story in mind, at least for these nine books, yeah, it was definitely all about keeping that status quo up in the air, never letting it settle. The team is not the same in any of the nine books at all. Right. So. Right. So when you finished Apocalypse Rising, did you think you were done? <laughs> Uh, no, no. I, I, I felt like I'd brought that arc to a close, but I knew there was more. And I think at that point I was already saying I wanted to do like Aubrey and Matcher in The Master and Commander and do 20 or 21. And I had some readers around the world that were like, oh, you're going to do 21. Awesome. I can't wait. And I'm like, oh, God, what have I just committed myself to? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I've still got a couple of people that check in every now and then. They're like, you know, when's number 10? I'm like, well, we'll see. We'll see. I haven't <laughs> well, closed the door on it. Was there a gap? How much time passed between the end of the first trilogy and the beginning of uh, the second one with Shiva Advent? 2007 is when Apocalypse Rising number three came out. 2008, my little girl was born, and I was putting together the omnibus of the first three and a couple other things. We put an anthology together. So did oh, other, that's right. Did other th yeah, did other things in 08, a short story book, an art book. And then so 2009, I put together the Shiva Advent book four. Okay, so a couple of years there, a couple of eventful years there. Yeah. Well, I, I, we, we don't need to spend any time on the anthology, but, I, but it has a soft place in my heart. It was actually <laughs> it my debut as a writer. Yeah, yeah. I, had, I had two stories in that one. That was a lot of fun to work on. Yeah, yeah. Ian Watson's debut, too. And he's one of the stuff. Yeah. And the cover. Oh, that was Watson's, too. Okay, mm -hmm. all right. That's awesome. All right, so the second trilogy, Shiva Advent, there's two things about this book, and I think I got it right, that really stand out vividly in my memory. Okay. One is the introduction of Shiva as a character. I thought you were that was an excellent choice. You definitely get your Thor, mm -hmm. but something totally different that we've never seen before. And it, I think that just fits in perfectly. It makes sense that there would be a superhero version of Shiva on a super team somewhere in some <laughs> world. Yeah. But also, this is the book, isn't it? That opens up kind of like uh, Avengers 162, where like the whole yeah. character's the whole cast is dead and they're all being loaded up in ambulances and you're like, what the heck just happened? <laughs> the first Marvel superhero comic I ever read was Avengers 162 and I opened that book up and Thor was landing and seeing them carrying out the bodies of Captain America and the Beast and, the, and I guess the Scarlet Witch maybe 
And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, I've heard of a couple of these characters. They're dead. Wow, I just missed something huge. And that really had a profound impact. You know, if I'd read it later in life, I'd have been like, okay, they'll be back, you know, in an issue or two. No big deal. But as a little kid, the first thing you read is that you're like, well, they're dead. They're dead. <laughs> and so, you know, that had a profound impact on me. And I always wanted to tell a story like that. And so with the Shiva advent, we have the Verthrun, the world mind and his cyborg killer I've always described it as like if the Death Star was a was a sentient malevolent being, like if the like if the Death Star had the Emperor's brain driving it, and the stormtroopers were like the Cylons on the New Galactica, and you know these cyborg murderous, very effective, not you know not stormtroopers that can't shoot straight, but very deadly murderous robot and cyborg assassins, and so I had to introduce that and we needed new heroes. And I also, the other big thing about Shiva Advent is I wanted to really start getting into Ultra's background because in the first three books, we don't really learn anything about him other than that he has amnesia and can't remember his own origin. So yeah, this book opens with two really incongruous things. One is the team is dead because, or are very injured because they were attacked by this big robot, this, the, this, the vanguard forerunner of the of the Verthrun, and also a flashback to the War of 1812, <laughs> where <laughs> these three people, these three secret agents, are dealing with the French in colonial America, and you're like, what in the world does this have to do with the Sentinels? And then you find out it has everything to do with the Sentinels and with Ultra. And that's awesome. And what, what a great way to start a new series, because you just, you open up the possibilities right away, and it's something that's a little bit unexpected, and you're like, what in the world is going to happen? You've already decided what the story is, and you find the most interesting place to pick it up. And um, I thought it was very effective. That's probably the most effective uh, opening in the series, at least the one that stands out the most to me. So tell us about – the whole trilogy is called The Rivals. Yeah. Who are the rivals, and what's the plot of this, whole, of this, uh, of this cycle? Yeah, that's a good question because The Rivals, that name has a double meaning. At the big level, there are these great galactic celestial level beings that are called the Great Rivals. And they, are, they float around the galaxy in different places, and they don't like to encounter each other because they each kind of have their own agenda. Stellarax is a living sun that goes around absorbing things into his database. It's kind of like V'ger. It's like if V'ger was a star instead of a cloud, okay? Huh. Uh, and he sends out Silver Surfer-type heralds that are like flaming fire lord looking beings okay the world mind is one of them and he is a giant death star with cyborg killers on board and there's others there's others the little gray man from a distant star turns out to be one of them with his big space station so there's several of them and when two of them come together somewhere they have to fight and it lays waste to the whole solar system so of course like three or four of them end up coming together at earth and it's clearly going to destroy the Earth. And so the Sentinels are like, we have to stop this, and then there's no way we can stop it. <laughs> you know, there's no yeah, way. I, I, let, let me interject right there, because I remember reading this story and understanding the scope of the threat Yeah, and being astounded yes. <laughs> at the stakes that you had laid out. And there's no and, way that a bunch of superheroes on Earth could ever do anything to affect that. No way. Like, it freaked me out. Like, there's... <laughs> Like, I was concerned as someone that had written at this point and had written stories. I was like, what has Van done to himself? There's no way, There's no way. he's going to get out of this. Yeah, I, I would have never gotten out of it if not for the blight. <laughs> I, I needed something that was so much of a threat, even to the great rivals, 
that they would be afraid of it and they could be affected by it. And so I had to create another thing that was totally separate from them that could, do, could cause them so much damage that if somebody could get rid of it, they would be that grateful that they'd go away. And that's what I had to do. And I was going to say the other rivals at the human level, which is really what it's about, are those three characters you see at the War of 1812, James Sheridan, Stephen McLaren, and Wolfe. And they end up getting these three gemstones. This is before Avengers Infinity War and all that, although the, the, the comics have been out. But they get these three gemstones. One provides invulnerability, so one is defense. I have a better way of putting it in the book, and I can't remember. One, one, oh, oh, it's creation, destruction, and preservation. Yeah, the Hindu uh, mythology runs all through this series in a very weird way. Huh. It's the creation, destruction, and preservation. So... Shiva has the, the destruction gem, which becomes his trident of destruction. Ultra has preservation, which makes him invulnerable. And Wolf, interestingly enough, has creation, which makes him kind of like Green Lantern, where he can make stuff using the green energy. And so those three use that to become basically immortal. And that's how they're still around in the 21st century. And is, is Black Terror introduced in this in yeah, this, uh... yeah. The, the the Galactic Council, these aliens, they want a general, basically. They want somebody that's ruthless and savage and thinks outside the box. And so they go and kidnap a Viking like a thousand years ago. And then they give him like super soldier treatments, make him smarter, stronger, faster. And they don't really take into account that when you take somebody that smart and ruthless and you make them even more powerful, they're not going to be a very good slave, you know? <laughs> so... He has his own plans once he starts uh, thinking for himself. Yeah, the, the introduction of Black Terror was a lot of fun because it was so unexpected. And I was like, wow, what, what, what's he working towards here? You know, thinking of it from a craft perspective, it was like, what's the writer doing now? Because it, uh, it, it really kind of took me back in an awesome way. I was like, it was an it was, uh, unexpected punch. Same thing with Star Knight. I think he was introduced in this same series. Yeah. You know, shades of both Green Lantern and DC's Captain Marvel and Again, it's kind of existing separately from the Sentinels, but helping to fill out the sense of a, of a well-rounded and populated superhero universe. So to me, I guess, I don't know if those are my favorite characters, but their introductions were the most fun to me because it really kind of helped punch up this whole feeling of a, of a populated comic book world that you're painting here. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. The, I think that book four is really where the whole thing starts to expand out. You get so many new characters, so many new situations. It really becomes a different thing starting in book four. It's kind of like with season two of Babylon 5. You know, sometimes people say, I wish you could start with season two. I'm not saying that the first trilogy is bad. I don't think that at all. It's just the first trilogy is very much introduction, and the second trilogy is where we really get into the, the meat of it, I think. So, as and, and again, with, with the conclusion, the climax that you had in Stellar X, mm -hmm. I was left impressed with your big ending in the first trilogy, and the big ending in the second trilogy, and really, the, the again, the scope of the stakes just kind of scared me. I was impressed with what you had built towards. Again, I always wonder how much of that was planned in advance and how much did you discover in the course of writing? And how in the world do you top that in the third trilogy yeah. and, and bring everything? Because I don't know when I picked up on the sense that there would be nine and that would be it at least for a while. But somewhere along the way, I kind of knew that, all right, Vendetta is going to be where it ends. So how in the world is he going to top this 
and give us a good conclusion to the whole series. And I guess what you were telling me earlier is these ideas kind of all, you were just kind of chopping up where you needed to for the books to stop. But these ideas kind of all formed around the same time, kind of all together. Well, I started to say, if I did it over again, I would probably put the big, giant cosmic trilogy at the end. But then again, I don't think I would, because I think that how you top that big cosmic middle trilogy is by making the third trilogy more personal. Right. right. I mean, the first trilogy is like the introduction. The second trilogy is this mind-blowing, you know, you're fighting Galactus and the Celestials. The third trilogy needs to be about the characters themselves again and more personal. And the camera's not so wide-angle lens anymore. It narrows back down again. And so I, I think it works out pretty well that it played out that way. I, I didn't totally plan it that way, but it, I think it worked out for the best. Because, yeah, the, the third trilogy we send half the team across the galaxy to get involved in an alien civil war. And the other half of the team is back on earth trying to put together a new team. And that's when the black terror decides to make his move and everything starts coming together. So, yeah. And I'll tell you, that's when I think you're right. You, you go big. And then before you're done, you bring it back to the characters. And at yeah. this point, the readers that have been along for the whole ride now are really invested in these characters. And I'll say that I was very conscious reading the third trilogy that you've called the Earth Kerbe War. I was very conscious of Pulsar in this book and how different she was than her introduction in the first mm -hmm. book. Like she felt like an experienced veteran and yes. growing into a leadership role or has already grown into a leadership role. And, and I was conscious of the fact that she was different than when we met her. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it felt right and logical, and the progression was on full display. That's the number one thing I think I wanted for the entire series was for Pulsar to grow up. I mean, that's we watched her grow up, and that's the main thing. The, the comic book that we're working on now is just a tiny little slice of her character, but it's when she meets Black Dragon. And it's the same thing where it's about her still being young and immature, so... Yeah, getting to see her at the end of the third trilogy compared to the very beginning. I mean, you know, in the in the first trilogy, she's she's bickering with Ezra about making popcorn with her powers. By the time you get to the end of the third trilogy, she and Wendy are basically the the Martin Luther Kings of this alien planet. You know, it's it's quite a mm -hmm. it's a strange <laughs> it's this kind right. of come full circle. One of, one other thing I got to say about the third trilogy before I forget the the big thing that happens in the last two books in eight and nine. And they're the ones that I waited a long time to write. I, I, I wrote number seven, got that third trilogy started in 2012. And then I took, took a couple, three years off to write some space opera, military stuff. And then I felt like I have to finish it. I had to get back into it, totally reimmerse myself and get back into it to write eight and nine. And so in 2000, I guess, 16 and 17, I wrote The Dark Crusade and Vendetta. I knew the Black Terror was going to be the villain, and I knew that the Sentinels were going to have to fight him, and I knew that there was a civil war going on with the Kerbai. The thing I didn't know at first was that the Black Terror was going to get involved in the Kerbai civil war. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And then wow. when, I when I decided he was, I thought, okay, well, that's how he's defeated. And then I thought, David, I thought, what if he wins? <laughs> What oh, if, man. I said, what if Earth conquers the Kurbai? It's like, what if Earth in the Marvel Universe conquered the Shi'ar? That's just <laughs> not something that's really been contemplated. But there were kind of two things, 
two things that kind of spurred my brain in that direction. One was the X-Men story with Vulcan. I'm not a big X-Men reader, but I did read where, you know, this, this, the brother of, of Cyclops ended up like briefly being the le- leader of the Shi'ar. Is that more like, kinks? Yeah, I think part of that. And I thought, well, that's, that's a pretty cool idea. I want to go beyond that, though. And the other thing was just thinking about history. I always turn back to history for stuff like this. And I thought the Persians were harassing the Greeks for centuries. Think about 300, right? The Persians were this giant empire with these giant armies, and the Greeks would just barely hang on. And then I thought, but you know what? Alexander the Great came along and conquered Persia. (laughs) And I said, I'm going to have, I said, screw it. If we're going to do it, let's just throw it all out there and roll the dice. I'm going to have the Black Terror conquer the freaking Persians, the the Kurbai Empire. And once I kind of decided I was going to do it, then I'm like, oh, my gosh, how? <laughs> he needs a fleet. And I said, he's got a fleet. The little gray man space station is there in Earth. I left it but, sitting there for no reason. Now I got a reason. See these things. Isn't just, that awesome? Man, that's yes, awesome. The pieces just start coming together. I'm like, he's got a space fleet just sitting there in orbit. But he doesn't oh, have man, a that's cool. And I'm like, well, he doesn't have a crew. He's going to have to recruit a crew. Well, how would a villain recruit a crew? He couldn't, but a hero could. He pretends to be a hero, so then we get law. It all just Man. started, the dominoes just started falling when I decided he was going to conquer the Kirby Empire. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely fun as anything when these pieces start falling like that. And that is awesome. See, that, I, I did not know that about how that story came together, and that is cool. To me, that is yeah. one of the, that, yeah. that is the reason to write is for yes. moments like that. Yes, it's, it's when, uh, you when you do the, do the little dance around the around the table. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you've left a, a piece out on the board, it's in play, but it, it's sitting there for a long time. You don't know how you're going to use it, but you kind of leave these threads hanging out there so that mm-hmm. you can grab them if you need them. And then when you use them, it looks like you had it planned all along. Yeah. And 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 I really do think you know if if you know your characters and it. it, it if if you're doing a good job, if what you're doing is working, an indicator of that will be these type of convergences w- will present themselves, and in exactly. and it's kind of uh, affirmation that that you've done it right, you've gone in the right direction, the story's holding together, and and, and it's kind of man, I understand, I understand, it can get you <laughs> jazzed up. That's that's cool. And you have to have the confidence that it's going to work out. If you're the least bit timid, oh, I don't know how that's going to play out, I don't know if I can do that, then you're too afraid to do it and you go with the more conventional. But I think it's way more fun to read a story when the author just goes there and just swings for the fences. Right? I'd rather him swing for a grand slam than bunt, you know what I mean? And also it sounds like you kind of challenge yourself. Again, this kind of ups the stakes similar to the big stakes in the second trilogy is yeah. it's one thing for him to get out there and lead the fleet against a, a superior opponent, but then to go, Nope, he's going to win that part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and then suddenly you've got to challenge yourself like, Oh no, oh, man, what, <laughs> what, what's going to happen next? And, and yeah, that's cool. That's, that's awesome. That yeah. makes me, that makes me love the third trilogy on a whole nother level. So <laughs> that's good. Now, that's good. That's cool. Now I'm going to have to go, uh, reread all three of those again. So <laughs> that, that's pretty awesome. Knowing what you know now. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So I guess big picture again, how do you feel about them? Like I know that over the course you started as basically a new writer. You had written Lucian, but it hadn't been published. Mm-hmm. And you had some old ideas from your comic book buddies from a decade before. And by the time the third trilogy is over, you've already written a couple of other completely different series. Yeah. So, um, and you've got a whole library and a whole catalog of, of stuff. And you're winning 
Pulp Awards, new Pulp Awards. I know Dark Crusade won Best Novel. What is that, 2017, 16? Yeah, 16, I guess, yeah, it did. I was very gratified that one of the Sentinels books got recognized that way. That that felt good, yeah. So I'm going to call the Sentinels your Rocky, okay? So you're <laughs> going to go on and do lots of great things, and you've already done other great things. But this is going to be the series that took care of you and got you started and <laughs> maybe you're most well-known for. So you're like Stallone and Rocky right here. I, so, I, can, I can live with that. That's cool. <laughs> so looking back, when you finished book nine, what was your feelings about the Sentinels? Exhaustion. You- <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe I did this. And I can't believe I wrote 700,000 words of superhero novel over a decade. That was the main thing, yeah. Disbelief. Yeah. So do you feel like, okay, I'm not closing the door on the idea forever, but for right now, I'm glad that's over with and I'm done. I've got other things I want to write. Or do you have Sentinel stories that are busting out that you're just going to have to get to soon? Yeah, everything I had in mind has been done now, but there are things I could easily sit down or sit down with Bobby and come up with, no doubt about it. The characters are so different now. I mean, we're in the spoiler section, so, I mean, Vanadium is no longer anything like he was at the beginning. He's basically Ezro's twin brother. Mondrian and Ezro are married. And, and by the way, that was such a gratifying moment. For, for so many books, I'd had him kind of fawning on her and her, like, totally disinterested. And I said, you know, what would be funny is not that he wears her down and gets her to, you know, be romantic with him. What would be funny is what happened. And I said, you know, they were on the ship and he says something in front of the big, the big hulking alien guy. He, he says something and, and Mondrian says, well, you know, we'll do that after we get married. And, and Ezra's <laughs> jaw just like hits the floor. And he's like, wait, what? And she's like, well, you know, after we get married, we're going to get married soon. And he's like, uh. <laughs> so I kind of <laughs> thought it would be fun to turn the tables on him completely, you know, because what was... Pre- what would be predictable is for him to just keep working on and wear her down. What's unpredictable is she's the one that decides that they're going to be together, you know. And then it actually happens at the end. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I look back at, at that trilogy and I feel like I accomplished everything that I wanted to and I left them all in a good place. But, yeah, I could – Bobby and I could sit down and plot a whole other trilogy. And when the time is right, I, I want to finish the shattering sci-fi thing and I got another crime novel I got to get done. But – um. I'll come back around to him. I can't leave him alone forever. I love him too much, you know. Yeah. Now, I know that you've already mentioned the art book, and that sounds awesome. I knew it was a collection of all his illustrations, but to know that it's a little bit of uh, you're providing story context, and he's getting a little bit of behind the scenes of yes. the process. Yeah. And it's oversized, right? You said it's a big yeah. coffee table size. Yeah. So that And that's all on your website. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's there. Now, tell me the card game. You did a collectible interactive like card game. Yeah, when I was trying to get my brain back into the Sentinel space uh, before I wrote book eight, I had gone to a convention in Birmingham with Lou Anders, and Lou was all excited because as a promo for his new fantasy young adult novel, the company had printed like two or three magic-type cards using his characters, and he was showing them off, and I'm like, those are awesome, that's so cool. And I said, I've got to do that for the Sentinels, and I started thinking about it, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized, well, i got tons of art, and I know how to make games like this because I played the Babylon Five game, I've played Magic, I've played um, you know the Warhammer game and all that. So I just spent like a couple of months on Photoshop making the entire set, and uh, you can get them on the on the website too. It's like a you get a box. It's got like the hero deck, the villain deck, and then like 
cards that do things, you know, effects cards, I guess you call them. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. When, when, when did that roll out? Oh, right around the time that the eighth book came out a couple of years ago. Okay. What do you uh, what do you have coming up next in the world of the Sentinels? Well, the only other thing we're working on right now is go way back. Bobby and I, one of the stories we were going to do for a second book, if we'd ever done it, was called Blind Date, where we had created this character called Black Dragon that was like a martial arts, like an Iron Fist type character. And we figured he might be an interesting love interest for Pulsar. Well, he comes into the Sentinels books, I think probably in book four with every, or five when everybody else does, when all the new characters come in. And um, we never showed how they got together. It's like there's a little time has gone by and suddenly she's got this boyfriend hanging around that's a martial arts guy. And so I went and dug out the old... Well, what happened was years later, I, I said, well, I'm going to write that story as a comic book script because Bobby and I had talked about it. But we'd never actually written it. I wrote it as a comic book script and then never did anything with it. Well, two years ago, I met a really cool artist at, at the St. Louis Sci-Fi Convention named Jennifer Stolzer, who famously does a lot of Babylon 5 fan art. And it's very kind of ma- manga-looking Babylon 5 art. And I was talking okay. to her. I'm like, like, this art is so cool. And obviously, it's Babylon 5 art. It got my attention. And I said, have you ever thought about doing a comic book? She's like, yeah, I'd do a comic book. And I said, well, I got a script. And she's like, oh, well, send it to me. And we hooked up. And she drew it. And it's brilliant huh. and Jared our art director has been inking it and he finished inking it last month and we found a colorist that he's worked with before that's really good and good old uh, Perry Constantine who who did the lettering and logos for our cold lightning science fiction military sci-fi comic last year year before last that we're still working on he stepped in he's going to do the lettering on it and so we're hoping to have this sucker done in time for Dragon Con 2019 at the end of the summer. We'll see. It's kind of pushing things along. But it's basically, it tells the story of how Pulsar and Black Dragon first ended up going out on a date together and what happened on their date. <laughs> okay. It's, uh, how, how long of a story? It's like 22 pages. Okay. It's just a one so, All right. Well, to see these characters that are so vividly portrayed, you know, I guess... Let me rephrase that. That are portrayed in such a vividly realized superhero world. It seems natural that you would uh, put something out in comic book form. So I think it's, um, I've seen a couple of the preview uh, images. I think I've seen the uncolored cover, maybe. Yeah. That looks really exciting. I think that's awesome. I think that's yeah. a great way to keep your foot in the Sentinels' waters and uh, share the workload a little bit with some other folks and, and give us all something that's kind of new. But uh, that excites me to be able to see mm-hmm. story pages, not just covers or, or one-off illustrations. So I, I, that's, that sounds like it's going to be a lot and, of fun. And she was the perfect artist for it with her style, that sort of Japanese style. And then Jared just absolutely did an amazing job of inking. He's Jared is the master of, you know, if, if Chris Kohler in inking is the ma- that does the Sentinels illustrations, if he's the master of texture, and he really is, his textures are, are brilliant, then Jared is the master of line thicknesses. And so when you look at the Pulsar comic when it comes out, if, you're, if you folks out there are still listening to this and, and you pick it up, just look at how he uses the thickness of his black lines to differentiate depth and everything. So it's neat to work with artists that have different styles and have different ways of really being effective. You know, It's just fascinating to me. I couldn't begin that's, to do something like that. That's cool. Mm. Well, man, I guess we should wrap this up, but I just want to say I think this whole project... The, the whole idea and what you set out to do and now it's kind of done and you're looking back at it. It's what an accomplishment. It takes, uh, 
it takes a tremendous amount of creativity, but also dedication. It also, and I'm sure you say that it, you know, it takes it takes a team of people to getting on board and supporting you and helping you get it out there. Yeah. And um, I think you've inspired a lot of people. I know that I was certainly inspired by Wind Strikes the Warlord. It gave me. I already had story ideas and was thinking about. I was messing around with the idea of trying to write. A book, but then to see you step out and get it done, it hmm. motivated me and geared me up and got me inspired in that way. And I could probably name a few others that where you've had that same impact on them. And well, that's awesome. Uh, I appreciate that. That means that means a lot, man. It really does. And uh, it's it's just a lot of fun, you know. It's uh, maybe maybe it's now been done by other folks, but at the time that this stuff was coming out, the idea of uh, original superhero characters in novel form seemed really new and unique. And yeah. it was a uh, is another way to enjoy this type of fiction. And um, it's just it, it's been a fun ride. I know it, I, you finished it a couple years ago, and I've been had this idea that I really wanted to dig deep into the series with you, kind of see your thoughts and on it, and give you a chance to just talk about it. I know that. Uh, that it's always a lot of fun to be able to have an opportunity to dig into stuff like this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and somebody that knows it like you do. I mean, this, they sold probably several thousand copies around the world in, in paperback and on Kindle and on Audible. And that's, that's amazing. But I know like a hand, I know about a dozen people though, that really have enjoyed it and gotten into it and, and corresponded with me, with me about it over the years including you and Larry Davis and several other people and knowing that you guys really have kind of taken it to heart and it means something to you that, I mean, that really means the world to me. It absolutely does. And I'm glad it could have a, a positive impact, I guess, on, on folks. That's great. Yeah. You know, I see, I see a community of writers from the new pulp movement and uh, you're right in the middle of that. And the Sentinels, you know, I think was, you've done the Shattered Galaxy series. You're, you're doing the, the Vegas heist stuff now. And you've done, I don't, I don't want to get into it. I know I missed something, whether it's Blackthorn or your Last of the Mohican type story treatments, or, or I should say, what would you call that? Public domain. Right. Just more stories along those lines. And, yeah. and I, there's a whole community. And, and I feel like it really took off and got energized in the last 10 or 15 years. And you were a driving force in that. And what's happened is a lot of great books have come out from a lot of great people. And I've read a lot of them and they all have been a blast. And it's just been really something to kind of witness this creative movement. And I really feel like Wind Strikes the Warlord and Renaissance Comics, they were kind of the it feels like from our perspective that these were kind of the seeds that really kind of helped get it going. So it's been fun to watch. It's been fun to yeah. see and um, to participate as a reader. And it, I feel very fortunate not only to have gotten to have the fun of doing this stuff, but to get to work with all these people and get to know all these people that are in the forefront of it has just been so great. I mean, because they're all such brilliant, creative, fun, good folks, just top to bottom. And it's really been an awesome ride, no doubt about it. All right. Well, it's almost time for the rocket to get out of here. Yes. So uh, where can people run into you this year? Are you going to gonna be um, making any appearances? Yeah, my three conventions this year, only doing three, and they're all in the fall. Uh, I'll be at Dragon Con, as always. This will be my 22nd, I think. Last year I said my Dragon Con could drink. This year will be my 22nd Dragon Con, I believe. Um, I'll have a table. So when I'm not on one of a bunch of panels, I'm, I'm usually in the military sci-fi track or I'm in the sci-fi literature track or a couple of things in the comics track, like the big Marvel DC Jeopardy. And I, there's a few other pan There's a few other I'm on the, uh, the high fantasy track because I talk a lot about Tolkien and Game of Thrones and stuff. When I'm not doing those, I'll be at my table in the uh, Artist Alley. 
So you can find copies of all this stuff there with me if you want to get it signed or get it personalized. Or you can, again, just go to Amazon or go to whiterocketbooks.com. I'll be at Archon in St. Louis, as always. That's our home convention here. I have a table there. And there's also a, con- there's a literary convention called PinnedCon that's been going on for a couple of years. Is apparently very successful and uh, has a very dedicated core uh, attendee base of people who like to read. And so I'm doing that one this year, and we'll see how that goes. That's in St. Louis over on, over on the other side of the river in St. Louis. That's in, I think, September right after Dragon Con. So August, September, October is my uh, convention crap awesome. this year. Yep. Awesome. All right. Well, I know people need to keep their eyes out for the Pulsar comic book. Yep. They need to keep their uh, bookmark, whiterocketbooks.com. And uh, where can they find you online? Yeah, whiterocketbooks.com and on Facebook and on Twitter, Van Allen Plexico. And I'm looking right. forward to talking about your stuff soon, David. Yep, I'm ready. We'll do it whenever you're ready. Very good. Um, hey, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for letting me host your podcast. Yeah, that's awesome. And, <laughs> and uh, I, I guess that'll do it. So the rocket's taken off. I need to go get on it before I'm left behind. And uh, I'll talk to you next time. Right, we'll see you down the road. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.